Amen. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53 this evening. You know, the Bible says that um, uh, a principle that should always be applied concerning the doctrines that are set forth in the Scripture and so forth are it's identified very simply as in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. And so that means that we can find church doctrines or Bible truths that are mentioned numerous times, two or three times, or could be more, uh, are things that God wants us to know and things that are completely established and forever established. So in Isaiah 53, uh, everybody agrees that the 53rd chapter of Isaiah is the chapter concerning the Messiah, the sacrifice that uh, God would provide for his people. Now there's, there are some disagreements in, uh, in the body of Christ about what part of it is for us and, and um, so forth. But God intended for this to be a summary, the 53rd chapter of Isaiah to be a summary of all the things that the Messiah would do and open up for us in the realm of, of God. So we're going to start in Isaiah 53, verse 4. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We've talked about this a number of times. You can look it up for yourself. In the original uh, Hebrew language, the word that's translated griefs means sicknesses, and the word that's translated sorrow means pains. Now, why the translators translated its griefs and sorrows rather than sickness and pains may be a reflection of their understanding of how God works. A translation, any translation, and of course the King James is, is um, uh, in this respect, is the most valuable translation that we have because it was something that brought it into the English language. Any translation is going to be dependent on two things. The translator's knowledge of the language so that it's an accurate um, translation from the original Greek or in the Old Testament case, the original Hebrew. And the second factor is the translator's understanding of God. Because when the Greek, or the, the Greek New Testament or the Hebrew Old Testament provides us, and the, and the Hebrew is really a lot more so this way than the Greek language. When the Hebrew language provides a meaning, there are oftentimes various different ways that words can be translated. And so in order to pick the right one, there would be a dependence on the part of the translators or the readers of the translation for the translators to have an accurate understanding of God. Specifically, if the translators did not believe that healing is for us, then there's a lot of ways that they could have translated Old Testament scriptures to justify what they felt like their position would be. If that was not the reason that they translated these words in an unusual manner in this case, then I don't know what it would be. That's the only thing that makes any sense to me at all. And I'm not saying that the translators were trying to deceive anybody. They're just operating on the best information that they had at the time. But you know as well as I do that the, that the Bible is progressive revelation. We know more about the Scripture now than they knew in Paul's day. And we know more about God's plan and purpose, certainly, than in Isaiah's day. Because things are in hindsight for us, and we're able to look back and see what was done. So, again, verse 4. Surely he has borne our sickness and carried our pains. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. That's a word for sin. He was bruised for our iniquities. That's another word for sin. He's talking about two different kinds of sin. He's talking about the original sin of Adam. Jesus paid the price for the original sin that was committed in the Garden of Eden. And then he paid the price for your personal sins and mine. So he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement, literally the punishment of our peace was upon him. The word peace is the word shalom. It means well-being in every area. So Jesus paid a price for your well-being in every area. This word shalom is translated prosperity in a number of places in the Old Testament. It's talking about financial and material possessions. The chastisement or the punishment, the price of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now Isaiah wrote this prophecy several hundred years before Jesus ever came to the earth. And so Isaiah is looking from the Old Testament forward to the Messiah's coming. And in the Messiah's coming, he identifies 
through what the Holy Ghost gave him to speak to the people and to us, he's identifying the work that the Savior would do when he came, when he was present here on the earth. And so he says that the work of Jesus on the cross would take care of these things, original sin, personal sin, blessing in every area, financial and material blessing in every area, and healing for the physical body. That's what Isaiah was prompted by the Holy Ghost to tell us about the Messiah's work. Now turn with me over to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8 gives us the New Testament commentary on Isaiah 53, 5. It's almost like God knew people were going to argue about this. It's almost like he knew that some of his family would not accept healing as a part of the package that Jesus shed his blood for. We'll start reading in verse 16. It says, When the evening was come, they brought unto him, speaking of Jesus, many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Now there are... Um, well, let me, let me start this way. Matthew was one of the first of the four Gospels to be written. It's kind of up in the air. Nobody knows for sure whether it was the first one, but it could have been. Matthew and Mark were written about the same time. Matthew was an eyewitness account of Jesus' ministry, and Mark was not. Mark was one of the ones that, well, he was uh, um, the one that turned around and went back home on Paul's first missionary journey. He was the one that uh, Paul and Barnabas got in a fight about had a disagreement about before they went on the second missionary journey. Paul didn't want to take him because he had bailed out the first time. Barnabas did want to take him. I think it's because he was his nephew. And so they split ways. Paul and Barnabas split, split up their ministry team. Paul took Silas and Barnabas took John Mark. So we don't know exactly when it was written. The estimates concerning the dating of Matthew chapter 8 or, or the book of Matthew could have been as early as 15 years after Jesus was raised from the dead, or it could be uh, another 10 years after that. Somewhere between 17 and 27 years later, Matthew writes this gospel. Now, I want you to, I, I'm, I'm sure everybody knows this. I, I hesitate to say it because it's so obvious. But you know as well as I do that Matthew's not going around with a stencil and a and, uh, pen taking notes on everything that took place that he witnessed. No, instead, some 15 17, 27 years later, after Jesus was raised from the dead, the Holy Ghost prompted him to tell things that he saw and things that he knew about and things that he witnessed. So when he's talking, he's looking back. He's not looking forward like Isaiah was to the things that would be done. He's looking back at the things that were done. And he reveals those things to us by the Holy Ghost Again, verse 16, when the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Notice what Matthew says Jesus did. Notice what Matthew says Isaiah 53, 5 says that Jesus would do, that he did, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. So in the Old Testament... Isaiah 53, 5 says that Jesus carried our sicknesses and bore our pains. Matthew says he bore our infirmities and carried our sicknesses. Now, the difference in the word infirmity and pain is slight from the Old Testament Hebrew to the New Testament Greek. And so Matthew is telling us this is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus did. He didn't have any knowledge about translations or the King James translation that would come a thousand years later almost 1,500 years later, really. So he's not trying to fix anything, but he is inspired by the Holy Ghost to tell us the work that Jesus did. He took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Now, some people get hung up on the part where it says that it was fulfilled. Some have gone so far as to even say that Jesus bore their infirmities, meaning the people on the earth when Jesus was here, he took their infirmities and bore their sicknesses. But if that's the case, then you could make a real good argument for salvation being for only the people that were here on the earth. Now, instead, and it's a, it's a matter of the language, instead, where it says that it might be fulfilled, it means the beginning of the fulfillment. 
But folks, you've got to realize as far as God speaks, the Bible says God talks in this manner. He calls things that be not as though they were. So as far as God is concerned, Jesus coming to the earth and performing the things according to the will of his Father is the same as him completing the work because God knew that it would culminate and finish with Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. There are other, trans, there are other uh, instances. Matthew chapter 12 is a good one that says Jesus did not wound anybody. He did not bruise a, a, what's the thing, bruise a broken weed or something like that. That it might be fulfilled, huh? That it might be fulfilled, which Isaiah had prophesied about something else. But the prophecy that is, referring, that is referred to in Matthew chapter 12 is the Gentiles trusting in the name of the Lord. So if this fulfillment means that it was taken care of, done once and for all, it's for them and not for us, then that means no Gentiles from the time that Jesus was crucified, buried, and then rose again could be part of the family of God. Well, we know that's not right because we are the family of God as Gentiles. So where it talks about the fulfillment, it means the beginning of something. So if it's the beginning of the fulfillment of what Isaiah said, Isaiah said that Jesus would pay a price for sins, personal sins, uh, or original sin and personal sins. He would pay a price for our financial and material well-being. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. Matthew, or... Um, Isaiah is looking forward several hundred years to what Jesus would do. Matthew is looking backwards, some 10 to 20 to 30 years, whatever it is. He's looking backwards to what Jesus did. Well, then what is the fulfillment? Well, the fulfillment is twofold. The fulfillment is Jesus came to the earth. He operated under the will of God or by the will of God. He went to the cross. He paid the price for sins, sickness, and poverty. And the fulfillment part is not only the, the sacrifice that he made, the shedding of his blood on the cross. The fulfillment part is that he healed them all. That's the fulfillment. We know Jesus went to the cross. The people in, the, when Matthew is writing this, people are still alive that w witnessed Jesus' ministry, that heard him teach. They knew him. They knew what happened. They had firsthand information. All of the apostles at this point in time are probably, at the point in time that Matthew was written, all of the apostles are still alive. And so they've been going on uh, eyewitness testimony, firsthand accounts of everything that Jesus did. But the Holy Ghost prompted Matthew to leave us a record because we don't have any firsthand accounts. We don't have anybody we can go to that saw Jesus and walked with him and saw the miracles and stuff like that. Can you imagine the stories that would have been prevalent in the first century of the church or the first generation of the church? Not only have you got Peter and John and some of those guys, not only have you got Paul that's talking about the revelation that Jesus gave him, what Paul called his gospel that the world would be judged by, but there are going to be people that witnessed hundreds of different healings and different miracles that Jesus did. We know that we don't have a record of everything he did. John says if everything Jesus said and did was written down, the world couldn't contain the books. Well, there are people who are alive that can tell those stories not just the ones that were written down for us. So Matthew tells us, as a confirmation of Isaiah 53, 5, that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, healed everybody that came to him, no matter what the situation, no matter what the disease, no matter if it was critical or minor, Jesus healed them all to fulfill what, Matthew, what Isaiah said he would do. Turn with me now to 1 Peter chapter 2. Here's the third time that the Holy Ghost refers back, or the second time. He gave it once originally in Isaiah 53. But then here's the second time for the church that he identifies the work that Jesus did on the cross. Verse 24, 1 Peter 2, 24, it says, Who, speaking of Jesus, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. Now notice he's talking about sins. That's personal sins, obviously, but also, as we've pointed out, he took care of the original sin. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Peter's looking backwards. Isaiah looks forward and says, here's what Jesus will do. He'll carry our griefs and bear our sorrows. 
Or in other words, he'll carry our sicknesses and bear our pains. Matthew, looking backwards, says that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and with his stripes we are healed. Peter, looking back, talks about Jesus dying for sins, us being made righteous, and by whose stripes you were healed. Those are the three witnesses that we have on just Isaiah 53 concerning the will of God in relation to healing. Now, folks, you've got to alter the Bible to come up with a different doctrine that the Bible sets forth. You've got to ignore. You've got to take out certain parts. You can't say, although some do, but it's a fallacious argument to say that Jesus healed us spiritually by being on the cross. Because there's no such thing in the Bible as spiritual healing. Jesus didn't say, whosoever shall call on me shall be spiritually healed. He said, whosoever calleth on me shall be saved. We know the salvation that he's talking about is the new birth. He made that very clear in John chapter 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus. Except you be born again, not spiritually healed. Except you be born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That's not a spiritual healing. God doesn't take the old spirit and heal it. He takes the old stony heart, the spiritually dead spirit that we were all bound by, and replaces it, and then puts his spirit on the inside of us. The new birth is not in any form whatsoever a spiritual healing. And nowhere does the Bible talk about spiritual healing at all. In any form or in any manner. I'm not sure what people mean when they talk about spiritual healing. Because if you've been made a new creature in Christ Jesus, as Peter said, and live under righteousness, then what could spiritual healing possibly be? God didn't make a mistake when you were born again. He didn't leave something undone through the new birth. So what would there be that would need to be healed spiritually? Do you see my point? So here's the third witness that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses and with his stripes we were healed. Looking back, we were healed. We were healed. We were healed. And immediately that raises questions in people's minds. Well, if I was healed, then why am I dealing with this sickness or disease that's attacked my body? And I'm convinced that in many cases, by well-meaning, sincere people, people that love God with all their heart, they haven't put the same time and effort into coming to the understanding that healing is ours just as much as salvation, that healing is ours just as much as righteousness, that healing is ours because Jesus paid for the same, paid the same price as for sins with the same cost paid, and that was his blood. Now turn with me over to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 10. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bound together and could in no wise lift up herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said unto her, Woman, thou art loose from thine infirmity. The word loose, the root, of, uh, the root word that the word loose comes from means redeemed. He literally says, woman, you are redeemed from your infirmity. You are redeemed from your infirmity. You are redeemed from your infirmity. Now he's going to tell why. Before I go any further, let me point something out to you. How is it that Jesus knew that he could conquer sickness and disease in anybody or in the ones that he ministered to. There were times in his own hometown of Nazareth that he couldn't do anything there. He didn't have any miracles, signs and wonders, no major healings of any type because of the unbelief of the people. Mark 6, 5 says it this way, and he could, talking about in Nazareth, and he could there do no mighty work. Doesn't say he wouldn't, says he couldn't. But Jesus comes upon certain situations like this. There's no indication that the woman had any faith. We don't hear from her at all, so there's no way for us to identify whether she had faith to be healed or not. 
Jesus seems to take this on to himself. So that means two things are possible. Number one, Jesus could have seen that she would be receptive and willing to accept healing being ministered to her. If that's the case, we don't have a record of it, but it's possible. Or secondly, the only other possibility would be that Jesus was prompted by the Holy Ghost to do something outside or beyond the presence or lack thereof concerning her faith. This is either a Holy Ghost-initiated action, a move of the Spirit of God to produce results apart from the woman's faith, or Jesus knew she had faith and wouldn't, would be in a position to receive. It's got to be one of those two. I don't have any idea which one it is. There's no way for us to make a determination anyway from what's re- recorded here. But Jesus, either way it went, either, either which of the two options were the case in Luke chapter 13, Jesus knew that if the people wouldn't reject him, if the people through unbelief wouldn't refuse, Jesus knew that he could heal any sickness and any disease. Why? Folks, I would submit to you that God did not give Jesus any more authority over sickness and disease than Jesus gave the church. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you or I as individuals would have the same measure of anointing or healing power as Jesus did. I'm not saying that at all. But the same thing that was commissioned to Jesus when he was baptized by the Holy Ghost and uh, baptized by John in the Jordan River and the Holy Ghost came on him and descended on him like a dove. The same authority and the same power over sickness and disease is what Jesus delegated to the church when he was caught up into heaven. Very same thing. No difference. We don't see any records. Like in the example for Acts chapter 3, the first case of healing that we have record of in in the book of Acts following Jesus' resurrection. Peter and John didn't minister to the guy at the beautiful gate in Acts chapter 3 and then come away saying, wow, that was different. No, they ministered healing the same way after Jesus was caught up into heaven as they did when they were walking around with Jesus and he delegated authority over sickness and disease to them then. There's no difference. There's, there's no indication that there would be a difference. And if there was a difference, don't you think it would be important for God to tell us? See, for me, the fact that there is no difference stated in the Scripture tells me that they came to the understanding, the realization, that the healing power of God worked the same now that Jesus was raised from the dead as it did while he, when he was on the earth and commissioned them to go heal the sick. That would be too big a point to leave out if it was there. So Jesus came into the situation, came upon the scene in the, in the synagogue, Jesus came into that synagogue and saw the woman, and something was triggered in him. Maybe he saw a glimmer in her that he took for faith that gave him the green light to do whatever he needed to do for her or on her behalf. Or maybe it was something the Holy Ghost just moved on him and said, minister to her. Either way, he had absolute and supreme confidence in his power over sickness and disease. What would the church be like that? What would the church be like today if we had that same confidence? Again, I'm not saying we'd have the same power individually as Jesus had. The Bible says Jesus had the spirit without measure when he was here on the earth. That means all of the power of the Holy Ghost was on him. All of the power of the Holy Ghost is spread out upon us and other Christians worldwide. So there's no way we would have the same measure as he had. But we've got the same commission. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel, and these signs shall follow them that believe. Mentions certain ones and says, they shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. He didn't say try to make it work. He said we would lay hands on the sick and the sick would recover. Jesus said the same works that he did when he was here on the earth, we would do and even greater works than those because he went to the Father. Well, you can't leave healing out of those works, can you? It's a pretty predominant means or or part of Jesus' ministry as recorded in the four Gospels. 
And Jesus said we'd do the same works as he did and even greater works. That has to mean the same works of healings. And it would have to mean greater works of healing as well. Now, I don't know what's greater works than what Jesus did. Maybe he's talking about numerically. Maybe he's talking about the number of healings would be greater because we could spread out all over the earth where he was just one person in one place. As far as quality of healing ministries or healing miracles that took place, how do you do better than Jesus? I don't think you can. So that leads me to think that maybe the greater works in regards to healing would be numbers. If it's not that, I don't know what it would be. Look at the way the church operates. Just what we know of in the American church. There are very few churches that don't know that God will heal whoever, uh, I'm sorry, that don't know God will save whosoever comes to him to receive Jesus. Everybody is confident of that. Everybody is confident. Now, you may have a couple of lawsuits and, and um, um, fringe element churches that are out there that think that there may be some sins that God won't forgive. But even those are few and far between. The vast majority of the American church says no matter what, no matter what you've done, no matter how long you've done it, no matter how bad you've lived or whatever, come give your heart to Jesus and he'll save you right now. He does. He absolutely does. What if the church understood that Jesus paid the same price with his blood for sin, for sickness, as he did for sin, and that we, the church, have been commissioned to offer healing to anybody and everybody, just like we offer salvation, the gift of salvation? What would the church look like? It'd look a whole lot different than what we look like now. I don't believe if that were the case, I don't believe we could build buildings big enough for people. That's what drew Jesus' crowds. The healings and the miracles are what brought people in. God wasn't upset about that. God hadn't changed. If that was his way of drawing people to Jesus when he was here on the earth, why would it be different? a different method that he draws people into his church? The problem is we've had hundreds and hundreds of years of people preaching against healing, being the will of God all the time. And so there's a lot of things that we have to overcome, even in our own thinking. There are a lot of strongholds that have been built up concerning sickness and disease and God's will regarding healing. There are a lot of strongholds in a lot of people in a lot of churches worldwide, but maybe especially in the American church. Jesus didn't have any reservations. Jesus didn't look for the one person that he could get healed. He expects everybody that needs healing, everybody that's sick, is in a position to receive. And the only place we really have specific information that it didn't happen was in Nazareth, his hometown. Back to this woman in Luke chapter 13. Jesus looks at her and sees her condition. He says, woman, thou art loosed, literally redeemed from thine infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. And the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation, because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day. And he said unto the people, there are six days which men ought to work. In them, therefore, come and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord then answered him and said, thou hypocrite. Does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? And ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan is bound, lo, these 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath? And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were ashamed, and all the people rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Notice the two things Jesus identifies as reasons for healing. The first one we'll mention is the second one that was in the list. The first one we'll mention is she's been oppressed by the devil. Now, where did Jesus stop and talk to her about her history? Where did he ask her about her medical records? 
Where does he get information about what's going on with her, how it started, how long it's been, and all that kind of stuff? Why didn't he start asking so that he can determine where this sickness came from? Because he knows where all sickness comes from. He knows the devil is the source of every sickness and every disease, whether it's a minor one or a major one, whether it's short-term or long-term. Jesus knows that. It would sure be good if the church would find that out. So the first reason Jesus gives, or the first one we looked at, that Jesus gives for this woman's healing is that Satan has oppressed her. Now, if Jesus is here on the earth showing us the character and the nature of God, if Jesus told the truth where he said, I only say and do those things that my Father tells me, if Jesus really told the truth when he told Thomas on the last night when he was with him on the earth, he that has seen me has seen the Father then we can accept that Jesus' attitude toward this woman relative to sickness and disease is the same attitude that God would have toward everyone because God never changes. And Jesus seems to take it personally that Satan has bound this woman and it's been long enough. I love that. That means... Since sickness and disease, every sickness and every disease is of the devil. That means God wants you well more than you want to be well. It's his enemy that has hindered his people, his family. And Jesus very specifically says in her case, should she not be healed from this work of the enemy, this work of the devil? Should she not be healed? Because the devil has kept her bound. God wants you free more than you want to be free. God has made provisions for you to be free. No matter what the situation we find ourselves in. Now the other point that he makes. Along with the fact that Satan has bound her these 18 years. Is that she's a daughter of Abraham. She's a descendant. Of God's covenant partner. She's a descendant. And Jesus understands that the people he's talking to know that healing would be a part of that covenant. He doesn't have to preach them a sermon. He doesn't have to tell them, you know, when God made that original covenant with Abraham, healing was part of the package. They know. Every one of them in the synagogue know that. Especially the elders. Especially the leaders, the rabbis. They know that. Well, look over at Galatians chapter 3 verse 7. Notice what the Bible says, where Paul said, inspired by the Holy Ghost, to tell us. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 7. Know ye therefore that they that are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. They that are of faith. Now, what does he mean, they that are of faith? He's not talking about the operation of faith. He's not talking about confessing and believing in your heart to receive something. The faith that he talks about here are those who have, by faith, made Jesus the Lord of their lives. So he identifies who the children of Abraham are. Remember Luke 13, Jesus said, Ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, be healed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Jesus said she met the requirements because she's the descendant, an heir of God's covenant partner, Abraham. Paul says we are too. They which are of faith are children of God. They which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. We're children of God's covenant partner. Finish up with verse 29 in this same chapter. Paul says it again by inspiration of the Holy Ghost. He said, and if you are Christ, that means if you've made him the Lord of your life, then are you Abraham's seed. Sons and daughters. Then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You've got better standing because of your new birth experience. You've got better standing than the woman did in Luke chapter 13 as a natural descendant of Abraham. 
the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, which was still in effect while Jesus was here on the earth. The New Covenant didn't begin until his resurrection. So the Old Covenant that's in operation or still in effect in Luke chapter 13 covers people that God calls his servants. But by the new birth, he calls us sons and daughters. So who does God want to do more for? His servants or his children? Thank God he didn't leave his servants out. And that's the point he's making when he's explaining to the the synagogue leaders. Ought not this woman being a daughter of Abraham whom Satan has bound these 18 years be loosed from her bond on the Sabbath? But we certainly couldn't in any way say that he wants less for his children than he wanted for the people of the old covenant. Could we? If so, we've got some pages to tear out of the Bible because Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6 says we have a better covenant established on better promises. A better covenant established on better promises. Well, if under the old covenant they could get healed because they were of Abraham's covenant, why would it be any different or certainly any less? For us, who are part of Abraham's Blessings and promises through the new birth experience, our faith in Jesus. Turn with me over to Matthew 15. We just saw a woman that Jesus said healing belonged to her because of her relationship with Abraham and God's covenant with Abraham. And secondly, because Satan had oppressed her and was binding her. Matthew chapter 15, verse 21, Then Jesus went thence and departed unto the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not a word, and his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she cries after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, it is not me to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. Let me talk about this verse for just a moment before we go further. The children's bread is the healing that Jesus said belonged to the woman in Luke 13. Healing is the children's bread. Healing is the the possession, the right of those that are born of Abraham, God's covenant partner. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that healing is the children's bread. It's something that belongs to them. It's something that God made arrangements for and provision for and fulfilled in the church. This woman is not part of that group. This woman is not a daughter of Abraham. He doesn't have the same right. He doesn't have the same opportunity to say it belongs to her. This woman in in, uh, Matthew 15, like he said about the woman that was bowed over in Luke 13. She doesn't have that position. She has no right standing before him. None whatsoever. He answered and said, It is not meet or appropriate to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Notice Jesus' response. Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. I love this story. And the reason I love this story is that Jesus is laying out in front of her why it can't be hers yet. Because he's sent first to the Jews. She's the Gentile. The covenant blessings of Abraham don't belong to the Gentiles. They belong to the Jews. They belong to the natural descendants of Abraham. We just saw that in Luke 13. This woman had a right. The Luke 13 woman had a right to be out from under the oppression of the devil because she was a daughter of Abraham. This woman does not have that. And Jesus tells her so. He said, I'm not sent to you. I'm sent first to the Jews. Being sent to the Gentiles will come a long time later. The first thing that happened in a formal setting was Acts chapter 10, which is estimated to be about 10 years after Jesus' resurrection. 
Well, Jesus is in his last year of ministry, his earthly, last year of earthly ministry here on the earth. So he's basically saying you'll have to wait 10 years. But she said, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Then when Jesus said that healing is the children's bread, it belongs to the descendants of Abraham. She says, Lord, I don't need much. You can do this. And Jesus says, woman, great is your faith. Great faith won't be denied. Great faith is not injured by circumstances that seem to disprove the truth of the word. And Jesus says, woman, great is your faith. Be it unto you even as you will. And her daughter was healed from that hour. I want you to think about what happened. This woman's faith altered God's timeline. This woman's faith accelerated what God would do for the Gentiles 10 years down the road. Now, how is that possible? How can we alter the things of God in any form whatsoever? Well, there are two factors that I think contribute to the answer. One is God's always good. And because he's always good, because he is who he is, he's always the healer. He's always the healer. The second thing, the second factor that makes this story special is that her faith reached to who God really is. And that's a healer and a deliverer. Her faith altered God's timeline. Jesus says himself, now if Jesus told a lie a couple of verses before, <laughs> we've got some real problems. Because a liar can't be our savior. So when Jesus said, I'm not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, that's got to be true. Right? So what does that mean? It says to me that Jesus is saying, it's not your time yet. But it not being her time yet doesn't change the character and the nature of God. Or Jesus, who was sent to the earth to reveal to us about our Heavenly Father. So her faith reaches out and takes something that wasn't even hers because of the goodness of God. She altered God's timeline. Oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it unto you even as you will. Smith Wigglesworth used to say, or they say that he said, that God will pass over a million people to get to someone, one person standing in faith. If this woman doesn't qualify, I don't know who does. God had a plan. His plan was to go to the Jews I'm certain that God's intent and his hope would be that the Jews would willingly receive Jesus, willingly open their arms and say, you're the one, you're the Messiah, you're the one that is fulfilling all the things that the prophets said. But of course, we know that didn't happen. And of course, God, knowing the end from the beginning, knew that it wouldn't be that case. That would not be the case for his people, his covenant people. But this one woman changed everything about God's timetable. Because she wouldn't take no for an answer. Because she wouldn't be denied. You know, it's a funny thing because I hear so many people make so many excuses. And they'll take scriptures that clearly show that something belongs to them. And they'll let them, their minds be influenced by the devil to talk themselves out of believing that it belongs to them. How many times has the devil told us that, yeah, that promise was just for the Jews? So it may be that or it may be some other reason. I've seen a variety of reasons. 
that people use to make an excuse for why it might not belong to them. This woman acted just the opposite. She had enough faith in Jesus' healing ability. We don't know who she thought he was. She does call him son of David, which indicates, at least in other places in the scripture, in the uh, four gospels, indicates that people believed he was Messiah. Maybe Jesus saw that. Maybe that's what her saying, thou son of David, have mercy on me. Maybe that's the equivalent in her case of saying, I believe you're the Messiah. But even if she did believe in the Messiah, he wasn't sent to the Gentiles and wouldn't be sent to the Gentiles for many years later. But her cry for help, because God is so merciful, because God is so good, because God is always a healer and is full of mercy. This woman's faith changed God's timeline. I wish I had a better way to say that. It doesn't really convey what, I'm, what I see or what I feel inside about it. But I don't know how else to say it. She changed God's schedule. Well, if her faith could change God's schedule like that, what would our faith be able to do today, knowing that we're talking to and joined to our loving Heavenly Father? She doesn't come with any explanation about how she loves God. She just realizes that Jesus is special. Maybe she sees him as the Messiah. And her faith changes everything. Her faith changed everything. No wonder Jesus said to his people, all things are possible to him that believes. I'm reminded of a story that they tell about P.C. Nelson, who is a great Greek scholar. And he was talking to a group of ministers. Brother Hagin was one of them. He was talking informally to this group of about six or eight guys, I think. All ministers in their own right. And he was talking about what Jesus said about the use of his name in John chapter 14. Jesus said, whatsoever you call for or require in my name, I will do it. And he explained that in the Greek, that phrase, I will do it, literally means, if I don't have it, I'll make it. And Jesus used that word on purpose, that phrase on purpose, to try to convey to his disciples, there's nothing that's out of bounds. There's nothing that he's not willing to do. If I don't have it, I'll make it. This woman in Matthew 15, the Syrophoenician woman, by her faith, created a healing blessing that was not intended by God to be her for 10 years. Because God is so good. Again, I'll ask the same question. If she got God to do that without being saved, how much more should God be willing to help us who have been born into his family? Stuff like that just makes me smile inside. I think it does God too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your mercy, your goodness to us. We thank you, Father, that there's nothing that's too hard for you and that all things are possible to him that believes. We thank you that healing is ours. Lord, we ask that you would give us revelation, open the eyes of our spiritual understanding in such a way that we see the work of Jesus paying the price for sin and poverty and sickness. Develop in us a confidence, Father, 
Just like we have confidence, this equal in confidence, the level of confidence that we have about people getting saved. Create that in us, Lord. We ask that you would give us boldness to speak your word by stretching forth your hand to heal and that signs and wonders would be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, that's the boldness that we want. We want the boldness that comes from seeing healings. We want the boldness that comes from experiencing the name of Jesus bringing results. We want the kind of boldness that the disciples had because of the delegated authority that you gave them over sickness and disease when you were here on the earth. But the even greater commission to minister healing to the world for the church. Give us boldness, Lord. Let it become a settled and established fact in each one of us that the price for sickness has been paid just as surely as the price for sin. In Jesus' name, amen. Hallelujah. I'm convinced, folks, that that's exactly what God wants us to do. I'm convinced that he wants us to have the same confidence of the victory over sickness and disease that Jesus obtained for us as the victory he obtained over sin and death. And we wouldn't hesitate. It wouldn't matter if somebody came up here tonight and fell on the steps and cried out to God and said, I need God to save me. We wouldn't have to ask him what they've done. We wouldn't have to ask him what their past was. None of that would matter. We'd lead them into the prayer of confession, the prayer of Jesus coming into the heart and confessing him as Lord and Savior. And we would, with perfect confidence, perfect assurance, we would tell them, now you're born again. Let us develop that same confidence in the blood that Jesus shed to defeat sickness and disease. Amen. I believe we're on our way. We may not be there yet, but that's the road we're traveling. I believe we'll get there. Amen? Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us. Now that you have proven your loyalty to the Word of God rather than football, <laughs> I'm empowered by the Holy Ghost and directed by the Holy Ghost to tell you you will make the first load on the rapture. Thanks for being with us.